0: three in Galatians. But before faith came we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, now that the faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Lord, as we have been worshiping here today, we have acknowledged you to be the God who is more than enough, the God who is sovereign and who is aware of where we are and what's happening to us. You're the God who says that there's nothing that you cannot do, that you choose to do in accordance with your nature. We thank you, Father, there also is the promise that your word does not return void, It is not useless to read and contemplate and proclaim the Word of God because we know the Word of God accomplishes what you choose to accomplish through it. And so, our Father, we pray that your Word today would be useful in our lives, that we would understand some insights into this text of your Word that would open our eyes to see and appreciate Jesus Christ all the more and what it means to live in grace. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Last century, millions of European immigrants made their way from that continent to a new life in this country, and most of them traveled a three- to four-week trip by ship across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm told, as I, uh, my father-in-law, by the way, was one of those individuals uh, in 1926, Uh, most of the ocean liners at that time offered their passengers three options when you traveled. You could travel as a first-class passenger, a second-class passenger, and what they called steerage, S-T-E-E-R-A-G-E, steerage. First and second class passengers, let me tell you, they had some privileges that set them apart. For example, they had the option to be interviewed on the ship rather than having to get off and go into Ellis Island and be processed along with the masses of humanity. They could be processed in their own way while still on the ship. However, all steerage passengers had to be processed again in that huge facility there on Ellis Island, which is a fascinating place to think of all the people who went through there. While scores of first- and second-class passengers would enjoy on the journey, fine dining, luxurious accommodations, and, uh, of course, beautiful uh, sights uh, with the windows looking right out over the ocean and the nice breezes and stuff, while they're enjoying that, thousands of steerage passengers endured horrendous, cramped conditions, unsanitary conditions, conditions below deck. This foul smells for three or four weeks and mostly darkness. The difference in the status between a first and second class and steerage traveler what was the difference between night and day. Now as we come to this text of Scripture, I want us to think about a question. Are there different levels of status in the members of the body of Christ? Are there first class Christians and steerage class Christians in the kingdom of God? Now, this is not a theoretical debate, just something we toss around among uh, among, uh, churches in general. This was an actual situation facing the churches there in Galatia in the first century. And the church members were, verse 7 of chapter 1, they were greatly disturbed because there have been those who have come to town, traveling teachers, who were calling for a tier system within, among Christians, among the followers of Jesus. These followers of Jesus, there would be those in the category who grew up Jewish, and they attended temple worship, and there would be those who were circumcised on the eighth day, and there would be a person who, per, who follows prescribed food regulations, and that person would be set apart from all the non-Jews in the kingdom of God. They are, in a sense, the first class. And then there would be those who were the Gentile followers of Jesus who grew up probably as pagans and were told that they were inferior followers of Jesus. They were being told, You're not real Christians. You're told, You have to do more. It is required of you, you steerage class Christians, you have to try harder to meet all the standards of true devotion to God, quote unquote. And some of these first class Christians, quote unquote, we're actually withdrawing from and not sharing a meal with and no longer having fellowship over the table with those called the steerage class Christians, those who were the non-Jewish from background, and they refused even to have a meal with them. Now what these churches desperately needed to be reminded was the gospel of grace. And not only do those churches of the first century, but our church and all churches today... Need to be reminded of the gospel of grace as well. We need to fight against the notion of such a thing as steerage class Christians. We need to fight against the notion that there are some inferior Christians who do not try hard enough or who do not perform well enough to enjoy the full favor of God. That somehow Christians need to, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Followers of Jesus need to be reminded that our status before God is not contingent upon keeping a long list of rules. Our status before God as forgiven, welcome sinners, saved by grace, is dependent entirely upon Jesus. Amen. And instead of trusting in our efforts, we must fully and completely rely on Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's what it means to understand and believe and live out the gospel. And one of the reasons that many of us view ourselves, and we have a tendency to view other people who also are Christ followers, we look at them as steerage Christians sometimes, is because we have lost sight of our new status as a son of God or child of God before God. We've lost sight of our privileges that are ours as a result of our union with Christ by faith. Jerry Bridges tells a fascinating story about a southern plantation owner who left an inheritance of $50,000 to a former slave who had served him faithfully all his life. Now, if you just get some context here, we're talking about well over 150 years ago, so that money would have been comparable today to worth maybe a half a million dollars. So here he gives this former slave what would be worth about a half million dollars. So the lawyer for the estate duly notified the old man of his inheritance. He told the man, the money that is yours has been deposited into the local bank. So weeks went by, and the former slave never called, never went to the bank, never sought any, anything about that inheritance. So finally the banker called the man and had him come in, told him, and said, listen, You have $50,000 in this bank that's available that you can draw upon that at any time. The old man thought for a moment and looked up and he said, Sir, you suppose I could have 50 cents to buy a sack of cornmeal? Not having handled money most of his life, the former slave had no comprehension of his wealth. He was clueless. As a result, here he is asking for 50 cents when he could have easily had much, much, much more. And I think that's the plight of many Christ followers today. We're not talking about money now. We're talking about the wealth of what we have in Christ. Paul was obviously passionate about the gospel of grace alone, and he emphasized that everyone, everyone, no matter what their background, no matter what they were Uh, had been trained to do or what they'd actually accomplished in their life in following Jesus or not, whoever comes to Christ in sincere, humble repentance and faith, regardless of their background, they are blessed to enjoy, Paul says, Ephesians 3.8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And one of the issues the early church had to overcome was this wall of separation that had now begun to be built which was contrary to the gospel itself. It was dividing Christians in two classes, first class and steerage class, in a sense, the Jews and the Gentiles. And the gospel of grace elevates sinners from any and every background, and it unites them together in Christ. Last week we began to explore several changes that result from the gospel of grace. I want to expand on that. We are going to get back to Galatians 3, and I want us to jump in right at this point. If your Bible is open, look at verses 25 and 26. Now that faith has come, the faith, the Christian faith has come, we, that is, many people who had a strong Jewish background and who were under the law for all those years in Moses' teaching, we are no longer under a tutor, for, we, for you are all sons of God. Notice the you there, as opposed to we. You, meaning all of you, not just some of you, all of you within the churches of Galatia, are sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So point number one in relationship to God, we enjoy a new status. We said this last week, sonship, sonship. Now one of my points last week was to contrast that those who are relating to God in a position of being under the law, that is, they're being trying to relate to God by keeping a long list of rules, is that it's the complete opposite of what it means to relate to God on the basis of grace. These are totally opposite ways of relating to God. The law functions and serves as a tutor, as a a prison warden, and he's pointing out constantly our moral debts as we fail time and time and time again to, to live a life that perfectly keeps the law. And living under the tutelage of the law, which continually reminds us of our shortcomings, was never meant to be a permanent way to relate to God. It was designed to prepare us for a life of relating to God through Jesus Christ. And if we're joined to Christ by faith, and we're relying upon Jesus' perfect righteousness, that is, Jesus' perfect keeping of the law, which He did, He was no sin in Him, then we are no longer considered to be minors. Every believer is granted the full status of being a son of God. And I say, why doesn't the text say son and daughter of God? Why is not just use the general term children? I think it's important to keep the word son there because he's not talking about whether you're male or female. He's talking about you have a privileged status, something that was enjoyed by those who were the sons. You have a status of being sonship. What does that mean? You have the benefit of being an heir of the father. You are a person... Who, no matter your background, no matter your performance in keeping the law, if you are a true believer in Christ, you enjoy the full status of being a son of God. That means that every Christian, here we look in the notes, every Christian on the basis of grace has a full share in God's infinite and eternal inheritance. I just want to expand on that just for a moment. Let that settle in. We have a full... Share of God's infinite and eternal inheritance. If that's not enough to rock your socks, think about this, Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, we are told that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So if the Spirit of God lives within you, you are truly a person who has come to faith in Christ. There's the evidence the Spirit of God has regenerated your heart. You're born again. Verse 17 Since we are children of God we are also heirs heirs of God and watch this and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ Wow Chew on that for a moment Through faith in Jesus Christ every believer has been granted a, a guaranteed share in the inheritance that God bestows on his sons, now it 's important to understand the tradition of Jewish families at the time Paul wrote these words was to give the vast, largest majority of an inheritance to whom? the firstborn son. He was the one who got the vast majority because he was the one who would then sort of be responsible to help carry out all the affairs of the father, make sure everything was taken care of. And so that's the way the Jewish folks would do it. But by contrast, Roman families, on the other hand, gave to each child an equal amount of inheritance. And so in the Gospel, every believer shares in the full inheritance of God. Not one believer is left out. Even more amazing is that if we are united to Christ by faith, through the Gospel of grace, all of us share in the same exact inheritance that Jesus receives by divine right. And what is that inheritance? Well, I'll just give you a clue. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, tells us that Jesus is the heir of everything in the universe. He owns everything. It's all going to be given back to him. He's the one that made it. He gave it to the Father. The Father says, okay, because sin into the world, sinned into creation, things are fallen. Jesus comes. He redeems the world and His creation. He buys His own people. And then what does He do? He's going to redeem the world and give it right back to the Father. And He shares in all that inheritance. We share in Jesus' inheritance not because we deserve it, but because in the Gospel, God deals with us in grace. And if you really begin to understand that, you'll see it all throughout Scripture. Look at just give me another verse here in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, a verse we memorized some time ago, tried to. Verses 3 and 4 says, According to God's great what? Mercy. According to God's great mercy, what happened? God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To do what? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. What's that saying? It's saying not because I have become a better person do I have this inheritance. It's because of grace and because of what Jesus Christ has done and through his resurrection, guaranteeing that the full payment was made, I can now guarantee and know for sure I'm going to share in this inheritance that's not going to fade away, it's not going to be destroyed, it's not going to somehow be devalued and and ruined. And yet, isn't it true that many of us, myself included, many of us lose sight of the riches we have in Christ because we lose sight of grace. Many of us think and act like spiritual steerage when in reality we are people who share in the inheritance of Christ. Why is it that we assume we must come up with our own spiritual capital when we can draw upon the riches of all who Christ is and all He's done for us in the cross and in His resurrection and His perfect life? I direct your, your eyes to your notes there when a quote I'd like thought was quite helpfully written. Philip Reichen says this, A good father gives everything he is and everything he has to his children. And God, who has the most to give, is the best Father of all. And there is no higher status a human being can ever achieve than to be called a Son of the Most High. I want you to remember that the privilege of sonship is not limited to those who perform certain traditions, those who perform certain religious rituals, quite well and therefore because they do that well that's why they share in their head that is not the gospel my friends nothing needs to be added to a person's faith in jesus christ to make that person more acceptable as a member of the family of god that he already is nothing n-o-t-h-i-n-g nothing that is grace Not circumcision, not obedience to food laws, not consistent quiet times, not going a week without losing your temper. Those are not the requirements that say, okay, now you've done that, check it off your Now you're getting into the inheritance. You can get your portion now. That's not the way it works. What does Paul say? Verse 26. For some of you... No, doesn't say that. He says, just for the first class... Christians, doesn't say that, for you are all, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. I couldn't go on until we sort of explored that one more time. So thank you for sitting through. That's like a review. But that was important for me and for my own soul to hear that. But let me go on, because there's some good stuff coming here. Point number two. In relationship to Christ, one another benefit we enjoy because of grace, that we receive, again, on that basis as we trust in Christ, we receive a new identity. A new identity. Paul reminds those who are united to Christ by faith, not just those who are striving hard to keep the law, okay, but to those who are united by Christ by faith, they find our ultimate identity in Jesus Christ. And I think it's important, verse 27, to understand... Some of the background to help see if we can gain a little bit of insight as to what the audience might have understood Paul to say when he alludes to this phrase, because it's a very unusual phrase. All of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Now you like me, you scratch your head and say, What are we talking about here? This mystical, deep, profound verse. Well, listen to this background of a common experience of a Roman boy. When he had his coming-of-age experience, it, it, we would understand that to include that in a Roman family, when he reached the age of maturity, which was judged by the father, the father would determine, you've reached the age, I can see it now, you've been under the tutelage of this, this tutor for all these years, about ages of 15 to 17, the father would perform a ceremony by which he would then receive from the child, who would take off a toga that this child had been wearing all the years he's been under that tutor, the toga there in the in the, in the Latin is toga praetexta. It means a covering. That's what toga means, covering. With a border, a covering, a, a, a toga with a border or a fringe on it. And what that meant was that this particular toga had a purple border all along the edge of it. It set him apart as this is a person under a tutor. He is not yet a full son of the father he is not yet a full citizen of rome he is just under a tutor and the father would take that particular toga he'd been wearing all his years and he takes away from it and in its place the father presents him a pure white toga called the toga virilis which means the toga of a man and he hands him this toga and at this time the young man puts that on leaves his right arm exposed that's the way the romans would wear it wrapping it all around you know and he's got the right arm out here, and at this point, wearing this white toga virilis, he is now identified as a full son of the father with all the rights given to him, and at the same time, his name at this point is now added as a full citizen of the Roman Empire. It is very significant to wear this white toga virilis. And I'm sure this is what Paul has under, I know he himself had this experience. He grew up in a Jewish home, but he also grew up as Roman parents, and so he had this coming of age. He says when he was arrested, I am a citizen of Rome. You must, I appeal to Caesar. He, He was a Roman citizen. So he went through this, and many people obviously had also to whom he was writing. It was a badge of Roman citizenship to have this white toga virilis. Now, a true Christian is one who has put on the toga of Christ and his righteousness by faith. And coming of age for a believer, the occasion when a believer assumes the full rights and the privileges and the status of a son of God, is when the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ in baptism. The Holy Spirit does this, Not something you can see, not something you can witness. The scriptures describe it. You say, well, why does he talk about baptism? Well, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, we are united to Jesus Christ by that faith, and the Holy Spirit baptizes us, spiritually speaking, into this vital union with Jesus Christ. To baptize is to identify yourself with, to, to be united to someone, to be immersed in them, as it were. And as a result of this union with faith, with Christ by faith, we participate in Jesus' death. We participate in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. You say, where are you getting this, man? This is pretty deep stuff. Okay, hang on. Turn in your Bibles to Romans 6, page 1344, and listen to what Paul says about the idea of being baptized and how it unites us, it symbolizes, and, and speaks of and communicates the fact that we've been united to Christ and all that He has done. Verse 3, Romans 6. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Christ. Notice the phrase, with Christ. Through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if, and I think it's better to translate that word, for since we have become united with Christ in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that when you come to Christ in faith, you are joined to him, the Holy Spirit joins you to Christ, and in joining you to Christ by that faith, you can share now, In what Christ accomplished on that cross, that meant that Christ died to sin once for all. Your old life has died. And that old way of living is done with. The old way of living is is now finished because you've died to all that. You now, because you've been united to Christ, you've also been united to His resurrection. You've been raised now to a new life because of Christ and your union with Him. And so every true believer has been spiritually, in a sense, immersed into the person of Christ, and therefore is completely identified with Jesus Christ and his redemptive work on the cross and in his resurrection. Now watch me. You say, does that mean then, are you saying, that water water baptism saves a person? Absolutely not. Clearly, that's not what he's teaching at all in this text He's saying that we are justified, that is, we're made right with God, declared right with God, on the basis of faith, trusting in Christ, what he did. And water water baptism symbolizes the fact that a believer has been united to Christ by that faith and that therefore we have died as we go into the water, as we come out out of the water, we've been raised to newness of life because we're identified with Jesus Christ by faith. It identifies this union. John Stott summarized how we are to view water baptism. He said, faith secures the union with Christ. Baptism signifies that union, outwardly and visibly. So again, if you've never been baptized and you are a person by faith who's trusted in Christ, that's appropriate for you to do because it's, it tells to other people, this is my identity. I am now identified with Jesus Christ. I confess him as Lord publicly. And we have a class coming up in August if you'd like to join we welcome you to attend. Now, interestingly enough, back it up a little bit, and let's go back into this clothing thing. He says, because you're identified with Christ, and the Spirit has, has baptized you and identified you with Jesus, early people, when they were early church Christians, when they were baptized, they would oftentimes put on a white robe to convey the fact that what? Now their old sins have washed away, they're cleansed, now they're identified with Jesus Christ and His righteousness. We do the same in our church here. We are justified, forgiven, cleansed, sinners, saved by grace. So that everyone who has been baptized into Christ has clothed him or herself with Christ. So if I am united to Christ, then I have already clothed myself with Christ's righteousness. You see how this would be so clear in the minds of these people if they understand this this process, these things that happen, They would know exactly what he's talking about. I want to take just a few moments here. I want to unpack a couple of thoughts here about what are some practical areas of which the implications of the idea of you have, all of you have been clothed. You've clothed yourselves with Christ. Let's think about what that means. Again, I'm thankful for uh, Tim Keller and some of his thoughts here. First thing I want to say is what we wear in terms of our clothes identifies who we are. Right, example, Um, went to Edinburgh, Scotland not too long ago when our son was there for a semester abroad. Going down the main street, Royal Mile, and so you go down this very old, old street and there's lots of shops, lots of things to look at, and it seems like you have about 10 different stores, and what are they selling? They're selling kilts, and they're very significant garments that cost a lot of money. And you say, what's a kilt? Well, you don't know this. uh, Scottish national garment, I guess you'd say. Uh, it's like a long uh, flowing garment that's tied up around with a big fancy belt and you know, it, it, not everybody wears those things. But with the Scottish people with, with that particular background, they're proud of it. It identifies them as I'm one of this particular clan. There are other things that people wear that signifies that. There are saris that Indian in the subcontinent all sorts of women wear these long uh, uh, pieces of garment that are uh, never stitched, they're just they wrap them around their body. It, it means different things different people, but that's a particular garment that's worn there. There's, there's other people you might run into uh, if you go over to Stony Brook, they'll wear a white lab coat that says Stony Brook Medical Center on it. It identifies them as most likely a doctor or someone in training to be a doctor in that particular hospital. Some of you have run into and you've met some of uh, those law officers who are wearing. A uniform as a police officer signifying this is their identity, this is their role that they're playing. Whether it's a, a military uniform you might see someone with, it oftentimes it helps people understand who we are in our role assigned to us and given to us in life. When we clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm a very important point. Our true identity is found in Him. It is not found in us accomplishing things a certain way, being able to have a certain level of of performance as a Christian or follower of Jesus. No, it says when I've clothed myself in Jesus Christ, I am not saying that other people define me. I am not saying that my failures define me. But the person who defines me and my identity is defined by Jesus Christ and him alone. My friend, if you understand that concept, that will radically change the way you relate to God. It will actually affect the way you relate to other people. Because no longer are you striving and somehow trying to impress other people By trying to be somebody that you're not, you're saying, I am what I am, a sinner. I'm a person who is desperately in need of grace. I have found that grace in Jesus Christ. I'm clothed with Jesus and his righteousness. My identity is wrapped up in Jesus. It's huge. Why why do uh, teenagers put so much emphasis on what they wear? Because it gives them identity with someone else who they share certain uh, values and certain ways of thinking of how they want to see themselves. It, it puts them in a certain group. My friend, what you do and what you don't do does not define you. Our true identity is found in Jesus Christ. Next time you put on your favorite dress, next time you put on that favorite shirt, next time you're putting on something that you find to be a significant art of clo- garment and you're putting your clothes on in the morning, say to yourself, I am clothed with Jesus Christ. It's His righteousness that gives me dignity, gives me a new identity, gives me life anew. It is in Christ. It is not in what I'll accomplish today or not accomplish today. There's more we could say about that. I want to move on. Secondly, another implication is because we have clothed ourselves with Christ, we're reminded to continually act and think as if Jesus is directly before us as if Jesus is directly beside us, as if Jesus is directly with us. Jesus is interested and participates in every aspect of your life. And so, just like you wear your clothes and you're constantly clothed, thank God we are, and, and, and because we're clothed all the time, we actively can reflect, I am always in union with Christ. It is Christ's abiding presence that's with me. At this moment where I am, Christ is with me. I am a new person in Christ. I am not just what I used to be. I am now a son of God. And with that understanding, it affects what kind of choices you begin to make, how you choose to live, and what you do. Back up to Romans chapter 13, just for a second. Page 1352. Some of you know the story of Augustine, the great church father. He lived a profligate profligate life. He was quite successful, quite brilliant. Lived with a mistress for a number of years, had a child out of wedlock, and all the while his mother, Monica, was praying for him, praying for him, praying for him, praying that he would come to know and serve and surrender to Jesus Christ. And it tells the story in Augustine, his book Confessions, he tells the story of sitting there in a courtyard, he's and, uh, and here's a bunch of kids singing a song. And the song is take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. He's like, what? So he picks up a copy of the Bible. And this is the verse that he comes to. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, But what? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its desires. That verse was powerful. The Holy Spirit applied it to his heart. And that was his his experience. But I think what Paul is saying for us is if you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that means reconsider. Go back and remember who you are in Christ. What are you doing now? Who are you? This is not a becoming of who you are. This is not in keeping with your true identity to behave in ways that are contrary to the fact that God has dealt with you in grace and imparting to you all these blessings and benefits as a child of God, son of God. And since by grace we're united to Christ, we benefit for all these things we have in the gospel, we're urged through the regular portions of Scripture, he says, take off this old way of living and put on what? Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on those Christ-like patterns. Put on Christ-like responses and ways of thinking. That is the way to deal with life as someone who truly has been changed by the gospel of Christ. One more thought I want to add here. Ultimately, having clothed ourselves with Christ is a reminder of the fact that we are acceptable to God only because it is God who in Christ has covered our shame and our nakedness. When you think about the first part of the story of redemption, you go back to the Garden of Eden, and you begin to realize the awful situation unfolding with Adam and Eve who, in disobeying God and breaking the one Absolute, he told them not to do. They did it anyway. And where do we find them? We find them, instead of enjoying the fellowship of God in the the garden, they're hiding, they're covering themselves, they're full of shame and guilt. And what do we read then? We read in Genesis 3.21 that God clothed Adam and Eve with skins of animals, on the basis of His grace. He did not wait for them to somehow make a payment, to somehow change their ways, to somehow improve their lot in life, and somehow give him something in return. It is by grace something dies. There's a substitute. He clothes them. It is a beautiful picture looking forward to the day of great redemption in Christ. And this gracious act of covering is, has foretold Jesus, who can provide to those who rely upon Him, who trust Him and who repent of their sin, they too can enjoy a covering of all their sin and shame. And when God looks at those who believe in Christ and who are united to Him by faith, He sees sons because of His Son. And the Lord Jesus Christ has given us His righteousness to wear. And so therefore we are free of shame. We can lift up our heads. We can enjoy God. We can talk to God. We can acknowledge our struggles to God. We can give thanks to God because we're not hiding from Him any longer. We are dealing with God on the basis of grace. And we're free from guilt. We're free from any need to hide from God. And so I close with this one verse. Isaiah 61.10 You ought to write it down if it's not in your notes. I can't remember. Isaiah 61.10 I need Walter Roter up here singing this chorus. We've sung it before. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. Why? Only because my life is going well and I'm doing all the right things? No. I greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. My friend, that is the gospel of grace. Let's embrace it. Let's draw from it and not live like steerage Christians, but those who truly are living a life of thankfulness, of awe in Christ, and of tremendous sense of awareness of how blessed we are to have a new identity in Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I know all of us know what it is to be ashamed. All of us know what it would be to have our true selves put on display somewhere, listing all of our thoughts, listing all of our secret desires, listing all the things we've said, all the vain and ridiculous things we've said to ourselves or to other people. Lord, all of us would be utterly ashamed to have anyone see the full exposure of who we really are. But thank you, Lord Jesus, that you exposed yourself in all of your perfect righteousness, in all of your perfect obedience. You lived a sinless life, and you let them take your last garment, exposing you to shame on that cross. And how you bore, not your own sins, but the sins of people like us. So that we might be wrapped and wear the robes of righteousness that belong to you. Father, I cannot comprehend this amazing grace. But I'm praying, Lord, oh, I pray the Holy Spirit will apply these truths to each heart here. There may be some here, Lord, who are still hiding from you still cowering, still trying their hardest to try to do something to become a better person so that they could at least deal with some of that guilt and that sense of shame. Lord Jesus, draw them to yourself, I pray. Help them to see that in their simple faith and repentance and turning from their sins, they can know what it is to be benefactors from your death on the cross, from your resurrection from the dead, and from your perfect life given to them on the basis of grace. Lord, I pray that you might bring new life, a new identity to those who are still living a life cut off from you. And Father, I pray for those of us who are living as steerage Christians, who are not at all enjoying the wonders of being clothed with Christ those of us who live every day as if we were outcasts and orphans, when truly we are sons of God, sharing in the full inheritance along with Jesus. Oh, Father, open the eyes of our hearts, I pray. Give us joy. Give us joy in the gospel of grace. Set us free, Lord. Help us to enjoy all that we have in Christ and to therefore begin to live in such a way that our new identity shapes how we conduct ourselves not because we're trying to improve ourselves to find acceptance, but because we understand the gospel and because we understand grace. So, Lord, we plead to you, we beg of you, work this in my heart and work it in our hearts, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.